Welcome back, church. Welcome back. Well, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be reading that uh, a passage, a few verses from that particular passage today. I give it to you in advance. Um, that way you can find it. My title, if you're writing down, if you're taking any notes, is Our King is Coming. Our King is Coming. Amen. I think think it's quite clear when we get into the Word of God. No matter where you read in the Bible, whether it's in some place in Genesis or some place in the book of Revelation or anywhere in between, we just simply get that impression from the Word of God that Jesus... In fact... In fact, he's, he, he's, he's on his way. That, 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 I believe, is the accurate statement. He's on his way. Amen, church. Uh, let's pray. You probably already found the passage, Matthew 24. Let's just pray. Let's just go before the Lord again before we get into the Word of God. Uh, Father, thank you so much once again. Thank you so much for this wonderful day. Thank you for the worship set that we just uh, concluded. Uh, thank you for the way that it impacts our souls, for the way music elevates and just simply places us, ushers us into your holy presence. Thank you so much for the Lansing and the family. Thank you so much for my wife and their song selections. Uh, we pray your blessings on them, certainly. Uh, but we, we ask you, Lord God, right now that you may minister to us as we get ready to enter your word. We need to hear from you, Lord God. May you give us something fresh. May you help us to understand it. But even more importantly, may you help us to apply your words to our lives today. These things we pray and we thank you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody say amen. Once again, greetings. I greet the church. These things are on my mind. I don't want to forget. I want to get into the word of God, but just want to give you a quick shout out to the church. Uh, Grace Norwalk, thank you so much. I love you much. It's been um, uh, exciting times. Although we find ourselves quarantined and confined, um, in many ways it's been an exciting time. Um, personally, it's given me the opportunity to get into the Word of God more. It's given me the opportunity maybe to pick up, pick up different books as well. Uh, and to just simply spend a lot of time uh, before the Lord in prayer. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. And I know God has been doing the same thing in your life as well. Uh, and I pray that you have been taking advantage of all of the time that you have in your homes. Remember, these are tools the Lord has given us um, which will enable us to survive and to excel, to succeed as the children of God that we are. He's given us the, the, the weapon of prayer. Have you been taking the time to pray as often as you possibly can. And he's given us the word of God. Have you been taking the time to get into the word of God? And then from time to time, we should fast. Because fasting breaks chains. It'll, it'll, it, it excels deliverance and freedom and, and just all these wonderful things that, that God wants to bring into our lives. Fasting helps us in that regard. Amen. Um, so I pray that you've been taking... In fact, one of the things that I've learned over the course of my... My, my Christian life is that uh, I've learned to appreciate prayer. For example, I, 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 one of the things that I convinced myself to do is to pray more than I read, to pray more than I study. So if I spend an hour in, in, in Bible study, then throughout the course of my day, I want to make sure that I pray more than that, twice or three times more than that throughout the day. Uh, it's just a rule of thumb for me because it works. Um, I, I, I want to say Christianity, I said this once before, Christianity is not determined by what we know, but by whom we know. So I can read the Word of God all day long. I can read books and things along those lines all day long, spend a whole lifetime reading. But if I'm not praying and enjoying fellowship with the Lord, then then, then what's the point? The, it's important to get into the Word of God. Don't misunderstand me. And I, and I love to do so. But, but my Christianity flourishes as I enjoy my time with the Lord in prayer. And so, Our King is Coming is, is the title. And I want to take this opportunity to share and to talk about this particular subject. Um, and I'm probably going to enter into a series for the next couple of months. I'm still working that out 
to be quite honest, I'm not necessarily sure what direction uh, I want to go in because this subject is so comprehensive, right? And I and I don't want I want to proceed carefully with this subject because I don't want to take this for granted. You know, we, we, we raise up this subject in our churches and we, 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 we go so far off base with it sometimes, right? Um, date setting and things along those lines, and I'm not going to make that mistake. So, anyway, this is referred to a study in eschatology. It is the study of end time, end time events as they relate to Bible prophecy. And for two reasons. Number one, the first reason is because, quite simply, it's extremely relevant. We need to talk about the, the scripture passages or prophecy from the Word of God so that we can, we can get it in a, a, at least a basic understanding for where we are in God's biblical timeline concerning the end of the age, things along those lines. And, and the second point is because the world, and in many ways the church... <clears throat> is missing out on the benefits of what it truly means to be a part of God's plan in these last days. I don't ever want to miss out on what God wants to do in my life by being ignorant of what the Bible teaches about the last days. I want to know exactly where we are in God's biblical timeline. How about you? And so today I plan on giving you just, just a couple of layers on this particular subject, as I said to you already, um, and if I haven't, I'm going to do so right now. I don't intend on really delving into current events. Um, there's not, there isn't going to be any date setting because we know that we can, right? Jesus Christ said it himself. No one knows the day nor the hour. So I'm not one of those fools, if I can use that, that, that phrase or that, that word, um, who's going to go anywhere near date setting. I'm not going to make the declaration that yes, Jesus Christ is going to happen, uh, the rapture rather, and the coming of the Lord is going to happen right now, right now. Because I don't know that. I don't know that. But there are signs Jesus Christ has given us. Um, <clears throat> so, again, to the point that I was making a few moments ago uh, about the relevance of biblical prophecy in these last days. Take, take for example, the fact that most of the time... Uh, Listen, I, I'll, I'll be honest, most of the time, those of us who are, are, are believers, we, because of our ignorance uh, related to biblical prophecy, we often take for granted the position that we enjoy in Jesus Christ today. Uh, sometimes we, we think about the, the, the problems, we think about this pandemic, and, and like you, I'm working my thoughts out through this particular situation. And sometimes, sometimes it gets the best, right? It sometimes it gets the best of us. Uh, and we lose sight and we lose perspective, uh, things along those lines. And this is one of the reasons why I want to get into this particular subject. So that we can get an understanding for, at least a, 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 a simple understanding for where we are in, in biblical prophecy. Because I don't want to take for granted where we are in God's, on God's timetable. Think, think about this, for example. Think about the Old Testament saints and how they must have felt long ago when they, when they were uh, preaching about these prophecies, this revelation that God was giving to them about the coming Christ, about the season surrounding the coming Messiah. And how they longed to be a part of that. They wanted, they were desperately desiring to be a part of the season that you and I are a part of today. In fact, they sacrificed their lives for the message they received from the Lord regarding the season that you and I are a part of today. And yet today, we are a part of this wonderful experience and we take it for granted on so many, on so many different levels. So that to that point, I want to share this, and I pray whatever it is the Lord gives me to share with you, I pray that it serves as an amazing encouragement to you. Read with me Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to be reading from verse 32. And by the way, I should say that this particular passage is just going to serve as a base point. Because I'm going to, what I want to do is I want to then go over to the book of Genesis. And we're probably going to be spending all of our time today in the book of Genesis. Amen. 
Matthew 24, beginning with verse 32. It says, from the, fig, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, so also when you see these things. Let me pause right there for a moment. I didn't want to read those verses because it's just too much content, right? You already know that I, I'm, I'm already long-winded enough. Uh, which, by the way, I'm going to keep you for at least an hour and a half. No, just kidding. Maybe an hour. Maybe an hour. But, but anyway, um, when we're done here today, take the opportunity. Read the entire chapter. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. So that you can hear from Jesus Christ these, these things that he points out that are relevant. Things that are going to be taking place in the last days. So when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no man knows. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware that the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then men, then, I'm sorry, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I don't know about you, but that passage is extremely encouraging to me. Yes, Jesus Christ highlighted a series of, a series of events uh, that are going to be unfolding in the last days. And which, by the way, so many of these things have already taken place. Those events that Jesus Christ predicted concerning the Jewish people then, who were alive then when he made these declarations, well, those predictions already took place. And obviously, Jesus Christ was alluding to some things that would, that would fan out or manifest or reveal themselves, but just simply occur in our lifetimes. Well, those things, a lot of those things have already been fulfilled as well. But of course, there are a lot of other things that have yet to be fulfilled. The point of that is that we are living during a wonderful season. In my mind, I made up my mind a long time ago that you and I are a part of the greatest generation in the history of humankind. Yes, we're experiencing, experiencing some difficulties, but this is a wonderful season. We get to enjoy the literal indwelling presence of the Almighty God Himself. That wasn't something the Old Testament saints, for example, were able to, you know, to, to enjoy. Not the way you and I enjoy. So this is a, this is a wonderful season. Nevertheless, times are tough, and people are asking a lot of questions. Here are a few examples that people ask. And by the way, Christians and non-Christians are asking questions like this. Um, um, are we living in the last days? I don't know about you, but I've heard that question uh, quite regularly, even recently. Are we living in the last days? Well, in my mind, the, 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 the answer is clear. Yes, of course. We are absolutely living in the last days. If we just consider some of the things that Jesus Christ talked about as a reference to the last days in Matthew chapter 24. It, it, listen, it doesn't take rocket science to conclude that we are indeed living in the last days. Um, as a reference, you could just 
refer to Matthew 24. If you have a conversation with somebody who, who asks you that question, just refer them to Matthew chapter 24. Another question. Will the rapture of the church occur soon? Now, quite obviously, uh, there's no way of knowing when the rapture of the church uh, will take place. But as I understand it, it it's going to occur very soon. Whether it's 10 years, 20 years, one day, five days, one year, five years, I, I don't know, right? But we certainly have signs related to the season when the rapture is going to take place. Are there signs to look for in order to determine the season in which the Lord will return? I think I've answered that one already. The answer is yes. And we, I guess it's in this particular series, we're going to be looking at some of those things. But not necessarily today, because I want to lay a, a firm foundation for the teaching along the lines of eschatology, which is the study of prophecy, um, the study of the Word of God as it relates to end time prophecy. Another question, does the Bible speak of a coming new world order? And if so, isn't it true the foundation for such a system is already in place? Absolutely. The Bible speaks a lot about a coming new world order or the revision or the, the, the resurrection, if you will, of, of the old Roman Empire. The, the prophet Daniel, <clears throat> the prophet Daniel spoke about this and we're probably going to get into that next week. And if not next week, the, the Sunday thereafter. Here's another question. Is the current pandemic a sign related to end time prophecy? Could be. Could be. I mean, we've, we've suffered pandemics like this before. Um, a, a few times, actually. Uh, the Spanish flu, so on and so forth. Um, and it, certainly the rapture didn't occur then. So listen, it's, it's hard to say, but certainly this is a serious situation that's taking place. And one thing that I can tell you just off the top of my head concerning the pandemic and what I know about geopolitics is that there's a lot of movement taking place on the world stage today that has never transpired before. We'll probably get into some of that um, next week or the Sunday uh, thereafter. Uh, there are also so many other questions that can be asked, so many other questions that so many people are asking um, related to prophecy. And we're going to get into some of those things in the next couple of weeks. Uh, <clears throat> and when you really think about this particular subject, um, and you think about the unsaved or maybe believers in your life, your children, family members, etc., who are struggling with the Word of God, struggling with this. This stability with Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful subject that you can just simply raise up and enjoy conversation along those lines. Because the unsaved, there's just, we said this last week, there are so many unbelievers who are like ripe fruit, ready for picking right now. And I think that this is an opportunity that we believers are need, we need to seize upon, we need to take advantage of. Um, nevertheless, let's get into this. Um, the, the first point that I have before you is this. Bible prophecy begins with the fall of mankind. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. I want you to see this with me. Bible prophecy begins with the fall of mankind. So, uh, as a preface to the book of Genesis and what we're going to get into right now, I think it's important that we go right back to the beginning. Because that's where biblical prophecy, that's where Bible prophecy concerning the Messiah, the Messiah, end time prophecy, that's where it all begins. So before we delve into anything related to current events and, and all that other fluff, all that other stuff as well, uh, we got to get back to the basics so that we can understand where it all began. So that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay the basics out. We want to talk about... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how prophecy from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where it all began, and how it unfolds throughout the course of time. Amen? For example, Genesis 2, looking at verses 16 and 17. Genesis 2, looking at verses 16 and 17, the Bible reads, As the Lord commanded the man... 
saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So quite, quite simply, this was related to a commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve. He formed them. He created them perfectly, beautifully. Uh, in fact, after He created everything, the Bible says that He rested. And that He, he looked, He evaluated Everything that he had created, and he basically said that it was good. And indeed, it was good. It was beautiful. It was amazing. But man was given a commandment. A line, in effect, was drawn on the ground, in the sand. He says, listen, enjoy all of this, but don't, don't, don't cross this line. Because the day you touch this one particular tree, the day you consume from its fruit, you're going to die. God was referring to the separation. To a severing, if you will, of the relationship that they enjoyed together, that God and man was enjoying. But what happens? They rebelled against God. They did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. And as a result, God had to make a powerful... If you're going to put anything down in your notes, you've got to put something along the lines related to what I want to say now. They violated and God had to make a powerful declaration. Look at Genesis chapter 3 with me. Because God had to make a powerful, powerful declaration related to the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what we find in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. That is where prophecy began. That is where everything that has been unfolding since the, very, since the very beginning, after that declaration, that is where it all began. We know that it's a prophecy about Christ as the coming Messiah. But interestingly enough, when we look over that particular verse, again, Genesis 3.15, put that on your notes. When we look it over, we discover a pattern that seems to unfold, and it seems to repeat itself throughout the entire Old Testament. And I want to share some of those things with you. It's, it's like a prophetic pattern, if you will. And again, it repeats itself. Here are three, quick, three really quick points about Genesis 3.15. One of the first things in my mind, in my view, you, it may differ in your mind, in your studies, but one of the things, the first thing that stands out from that particular verse, is judgment. Immediately after Adam and Eve did that which they weren't supposed to do, immediately God declared a judgment on their lives. Not only did they lose their place in their relationship with the Lord, if that wasn't judgment enough, which, which was, at the end of this discourse that God had with Adam and Eve, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. They were basically kicked out. Their lease was up. You're out of here. And they were removed from the comforts they had known. Um, not only that, but God declared a judgment on the serpent. He condemned the serpent, the serpent to crawling on the ground. Probably the serpent had legs. Right? We're not going to get into that. Um, and then, of course, a judgment of war was determined upon the devil himself. Old Slewfoot, the devil. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later. Um, and this particular judgment, this particular pattern related to the judgment, it, it sort of repeats itself throughout all history, as I stated before. And the second thing that stands out uh, from Genesis 3.15, in my mind, is the first gospel. Quote, unquote, the first Gospel, And I shared this many, many, many times, and we're not going to get into that uh, right here. I shared that many times with you uh, when we enjoyed service here. The, the word is proto-evangelium, one word. Proto-evangelium, and it's referred to as the, the first gospel. It's the proclamation of the coming Messiah, the Savior who will enter the human race and defeat the power of Satan. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ. 
It is God's provision related to the redemption of the human race. And it's because of that symbolic gesture that God was able to extend salvation to the people who became known as the Hebrews. Just, Just think about that for a moment. God makes this declaration, and then He extends His grace to the Hebrew people that He established to through the man Abraham. And we're going to be getting into that in just a little bit. Think about that though. Because of God's love, He announces the death of His Son, and then He extends mercy to sinners. Those are the things that stand out from Genesis 3.16, the first gospel, proto Evangelium. And the third point uh, concerning Genesis 3.15 is this, that in my view, we have an inference to the kingdom of God. We know that prophecy, we know the prophecy is about the God-man, right? We know that it's about the Messiah, we know that it's about Jesus Christ, but we also know that God came to establish a kingdom. We, we know that. We know that when God, throughout the entire, the, throughout the entire Old, Old Testament... God was always speaking in terms of establishing a nation on earth, which he did in the Old Testament. They're known as the the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. But it was a, a symbol, a shadow, a type of things to come in Christ Jesus. We know this to be the church. Now, don't misunderstand that. Don't read too much into that because I don't I'm not one of those guys who preaches that that, that the church has replaced the, the, the nation of Israel. I don't subscribe to replacement theology. That's not biblical. That's not what I just finished uh, saying there. But the point is that in this third point concerning Genesis 3.15 is that when we speak of the Messiah, when God spoke in my view of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, He was also speaking of the nation or the community of believers that He would later establish. In my view, they are inseparable. I believe whenever we speak about Jesus in this context, we must also speak of the idea related to the family that God came to establish. And we see this picture throughout the entire Bible. The second point, the first point that I gave you, not the one related to... Let me just back up a minute. Not the one related to Genesis 3.15, but the first point of my message was, Bible prophecy begins with the fall of mankind. And the second point is the perpetual prophecy campaign. The perpetual prophecy campaign. The idea here is that the Lord continues to stack one prediction on top of another until His ultimate the, until the ultimate fulfillment of all prophecy. He, he kind of stacks them throughout all of history. And we know Jesus ultimately fulfilled Genesis 3.15. But think about how the Lord followed through with the initial prediction by repeating it as a model throughout all of history. Over and over again, the Old Testament presents the redemption narrative. Put that, put that down on your notes. Because over and over again, the Lord presents... The, uh, the Old Testament presents the, old, the redemption narrative as a shadow of things to come. Remember when the Lord closed Adam and Eve? You remember that? Shortly after they rebelled against God, shortly after they sinned, uh, God took the initiative. He slew an animal and He put clothing on their backs. That is when this campaign of prophecy Began because that is when God initially gave us this this type of the Messiah. He makes the declaration in Genesis three fifteen, but then as we move towards Genesis to the I think it was verse twenty one of Genesis chapter three, God slays an animal. Doesn't overtly say that he kills an animal, but it does say that he put clothing on Adam and Eve. Where did the clothing come from? He slew an animal. He put skins of an animal. On them as clothing, which serves as a type, the lamb that was slaughtered, and that's represented, we see that in Christ Jesus. Let's consider, for example, uh, sort of to extend this point, let's consider the patriarch Noah. 
And I want you to turn to, um, we're going to get into it. I'll give you the verse in a few moments. Uh, but I want you to consider the first point concerning Noah, or the first point that I made concerning, concerning Genesis 3.15. And, and let me back up just a little bit. What I want to do is I want to establish the point uh, that, that, that the model, if you will, that God presents to us in Genesis 3.15, how it continues to unfold throughout the history of mankind. And concerning Noah, he was trying to lead people to repentance because of what? Because of judgment. That's the first thing I pointed out concerning Genesis 3.15. Because of judgment. There was a judgment coming. There was a flood coming. It had never rained. And they had never heard, they had never, the people for the most part had never heard the message. Like the one Noah was preaching for perhaps 120 years, if my memory serves me well. And the people, for the most part, they were so rebellious, they didn't want to hear what Noah had to say to them about God's warning, about the judgment that was coming. The second point that I made concerning Genesis 3.15 was related to Christ, the Messiah. And we know that Noah is regarded as, as a type of Christ. He was a messenger, right? He was proclaiming the gospel, or the first gospel. He was... Enhancing or extending that proto-evangelium message that one day the Messiah himself would die on an old rugged cross for the sins of mankind. We're talking about the redemption narrative that began in Genesis 3.15. And the third point concerning Genesis 3.15 was that I spoke about a kingdom of God. I spoke about a family, the nation, the, 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 the family of believers that God came to Establish in the story of Noah, we see we see him trying to draw mankind to the ark for salvation. Well, that's because it was the vehicle of salvation to them back then. Granted, not everybody was going to fit in the ark, but God also knew in advance that people weren't going to respond. He knew in advance that the ark was more, just basically going to be filled with animals. Noah. And his family. But I believe in my heart that God extended an opportunity for life, for man then to be saved. They chose not to take heed. I know the ark is regarded as a type of Christ, and indeed it was, but in my view, it was also a type of the church. What was it John the Baptist declared when he began his earthly ministry? You remember that? The book of Matthew, in fact, in the gospel, what was it that John the Baptist declared? He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the point is that Jesus Christ came to establish a family, a nation of believers, the church. And we see that as well as the other two points that I presented from Genesis 3.15. It repeats itself throughout the entire Old Testament. God moved that and He used that, that, that model. Extending the, the point further, we know that Noah and his family, they dwelt safely away from God's judgment within the ark. Didn't he not? Didn't they not? They dwelt safely in the ark. Well, in the same way, to, today we enjoy... A wonderful position as members of Christ's body, the church. It is where you and I get to dwell safely. And one day, listen to this. And one day it is the church that will be raptured out of the world when the final judgment begins. And that's just one example Bringing up Noah. That's just one example of where the redemption narrative is mentioned in Scripture. There are thousands, and all of them, when you consider all of those examples in the Old Testament, we're going to move forward and talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about them. But when you consider all of these factors, all of these points concerning the redemption narrative in the Old Testament, they all serve to bring us face to face. With an encounter with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what it all served. This is biblical prophecy. All of it was moving mankind forward to the, to the day when we would have an encounter with Jesus Christ himself.
Think about it. He was and is the reason for all prophecies. I want, you to, I want to present my third point to you right now concerning this, um, this message. Because I want to talk about how this in a grand way explodes. This model, how it explodes in Abraham's life. may not necessarily spend too much time. I want to be sensitive to our time together. But it, this, this model kind of explodes in Abraham's life. And in effect, he becomes, as referred to in the New Testament, the father of our faith. Abraham becomes the father of our faith. So this point is titled, or subtitled, Abraham the Righteous. Abraham the Righteous. And the natural flow of our redemption narrative it takes us to a man by the name of Abraham. And if you look at, go to Genesis chapter 12. Because this is where we have our initial encounter with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses um, 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. It says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. Can you imagine how Abraham must have felt. Hearing those words from the Lord to Abraham. Can you, can you imagine? But just think. That, that declaration was the continued advancement of the Genesis 3.15 narrative. The redemption narrative. Now he's... It, it's kind of like God was looking for somebody to bestow himself upon. And he found a man by the name of Abraham. We know that Abraham wasn't a saint. Later on, we, we know that he was regarded as righteous. God actually imputes his righteousness upon Abraham because he believed in the commandment. He, he, Abraham believed in God's word concerning Isaac. We're going to get there in a, in a, in a few moments. Uh, but just think about this initial phase. Abraham believes. He's regarded as righteous. But we know prior to this encounter with God, or prior to that encounter at Mount Moriah, Abraham wasn't a righteous man. God, the Lord wasn't looking for anybody righteous in their own sight to bestow all of his all of his blessings upon no not at all we actually know from the word of god that that abraham and his entire family they were idolaters the bible the bible speaks extensively about the idols that abraham and his father had the, the idols that they had in their homes god wasn't looking for a perfect man he was looking for somebody to pour his grace upon. Again, I know that I sound like a broken record, but this constantly refers back to Genesis 3.15. It was a, a, a powerful declaration of grace in His Son, in Jesus, that one day He would die for us. And that grace, that measure of grace, was kind of bestowed upon Abraham, although he was a sinner. Grace was extended to Abraham it was extended to Isaac and Jacob, to all of mankind who chose to believe and then ultimately to you and I here today. Imagine how Abraham must have felt. So the word of God regards Abraham in a sense as a type of our heavenly father. The Lord bestowed so much upon him. But I want you to consider this. We, 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 we know him as the, as the father of our faith. But think about how, how these blessings upon Abraham serves to validate everything that we've talked about so far. And how ultimately it was through Abraham that you and I were able to, are able to experience everything that we enjoy today by faith. Salvation is not according to the legal system. Salvation is by faith through God's grace and God's grace Alone, and I want to see how I want us to see how this continues to unfold through Abraham's son. 
I want you to go to Genesis chapter 21. We may or may not necessarily be, read a verse there or not. But this is where an encounter takes place with regard to Isaac. And the title here of this fourth point is Isaac the son of promise. Isaac the son of promise. We first read about Isaac in Genesis 21. And if you can remember, I wanted to make this point. If you can remember, Isaac was what well, Isaac was the son Abraham and, and Sarah weren't supposed to have. As you know, you may recall from the Word of God, they were both old, number one. And, and secondly, Sarah was barren. They essentially couldn't have children. But in their old age, because of the grace of God, they were able to have a son whom they named Isaac. Isaac was the, the miracle child. He was a miracle birth. And does that sound familiar to you? It, it, it sounds so familiar because we know that Jesus Christ himself was a miracle baby. Jesus Christ himself was a, a miracle child. Therefore, Isaac is regarded as a type of Christ, as a type of the Messiah. And here's some interesting points that I want to make out. And if you have your pen and paper ready, I want you to make note of some of these things because they, they're quite interesting. They, they stood out as extremely interesting to me. Uh, number one, Abraham was given a promise. <clears throat> Let me back up a little bit. Both Isaac and Jesus had fathers who were willing, who were willing to slay them to fulfill a larger purpose. I'm going to repeat that. Both Isaac and Jesus had fathers who were willing to slay them to fulfill a larger purpose. I think that's extremely extraordinary. Abraham was given a promise, but then God nearly causes him to sacrifice Isaac. Just, just think of that. One moment he's receiving an, a, an extraordinary promise from God that he was going to have a son, that his son was going to have a son, and so on and so forth, and that he was going to become the father of an amazing nation of peoples. But no sooner he receives that promise, God is demanding that Abraham sacrifice that particular child. And so I, I can imagine Abraham is doing the math in his head, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't sum up that I would do what you are asking me to do. And when we consider Jesus Christ, think of, think of Christ on the cross one day, so many years later, he makes this profound declaration. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just think about that. God was willing to slay his son to achieve, to fulfill a larger Purpose, and they both had that. Um, at, let me move on. Number two, both were sons of promise, and number three, both were obedient and willing sons who were prepared and willing to lay down their lives at the father's behest. Think about that. Nowhere in Scripture in the Old Testament do we read. That Isaac wrestled with his father regarding the sacrifice that was going to take place. We know that as they were heading up the mountain, Mount Moriah, would imagine if my memory serves me well. They're heading up the mountain to a sacrifice and Isaac asked Abraham, his father, we have wood, we got rope, we got fire, we even got that knife. I, I know you got that knife, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says to him, my son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And then I would imagine a short time later, he erects this makeshift altar and he's preparing to lay his son Isaac on that altar as a sacrifice. And nowhere in scripture do we read that Isaac resisted. That to me is extremely extraordinary and think about this concerning Christ in Isaiah 53 verse 7 we read about this where it says concerning Jesus he was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So he opened not his mouth. And get this. This, this was going to blow your mind. You probably thought about it. I'm thinking of Roy in my mind, Roy Harbert. You probably thought about this before. So many of you probably have thought about it as well. But think about this. Both sons, both Isaac and Jesus Christ, carried the wood for their own sacrifice. That's extraordinary. Both Isaac and Jesus carried the wood for their own sacrifice. Because Isaac was a type of Jesus Christ. And that's the point that we were making before a couple of times. That Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 prophecy, it repeats itself. The points that we can extrapolate from that particular verse. They repeat themselves throughout all of history. He finds a man by the name of Abraham and God extends his grace toward him. And then he in turn has a son. And then we move forward to Jacob, the fifth point. Jacob, the bearer of nations, where God takes this man and he extends the prophecy through him as well. All the way through the annals of time until fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. Concerning Jacob, we, were, we first read of him in Genesis chapter 25. Concerning his birth, the Bible says he and his twin brother, it, it says they wrestled in, in, in the womb. It's kind of as if they both knew that whoever came out first kind of inherited everything, right? There was a battle taking place in their womb. And, 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 and they, they both, we know that Esau came out first and then Jacob came out. Came out. And then the later, the later in, in Jacob's life, he is regarded as the laboring shepherd who left his father's home to dwell in a far country because he was fleeing from his brother Esau's wrath. From the very beginning, even before they were born, they were warring, they were fighting. And then just a short time later, Jacob has to run from his brother Esau. And pretty much all of his life, he's running from the wrath of his brother Esau. And this follows the pattern of Genesis 3.15. Because Jacob becomes a type of the Messiah. Jacob becomes a type of the Messiah but not only that, as well as the one through whom the family of God truly flourished in any way. Because remember, one of the points that I made about Genesis 3.15 is that God was always looking to establish a family, a nation of people. And that has served as a type for the church, the family of God in this season that you and I are a part of today. Think about this. Jacob went on to have 12 sons. And they went on to have sons, etc., etc. We're talking about numerous posterity. Uh, uh, what was it? I'm thinking about the promise that God made to Abraham. I'm not sure if I read that particular passage to you or not. Let, let, me, let me look to that because if I did not read that, I want to read it to you. Genesis chapter 12. I think I read it. I'm not sure, but I want to read it. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in a sense, that is where he becomes a type of the church. Not just Abraham, not just Isaac, but Jacob as well. Jacob has these sons. We know that by, I've been doing some reading, we know that many theologians actually refer to his first wife, Leah, as a type of the church. But in some way, at least in my view, Jacob serves 
that purpose as well because he's a part of the family that God established in the Old Testament. And that family, the nation of Israel, served as a type of the family of God. Doesn't replace, the church doesn't replace the Israelites. Just serves as a type, as a shadow of things to come in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we know for sure is, he served as a catalyst for bringing the Son of God into the world to save sinners. To bring, to usher into the world, the Son of God to save sinners. Thank you, Jesus. Hopefully we can all clearly see what God has been up to from the very beginning. I've laid out some of these things. Next week we're going to continue delving into this stuff. But hopefully by mentioning the points of Genesis 3.15 and how it repeated itself into Abraham's life, Isaac's life, and Jacob's life, hopefully we can see clearly how the redemption narrative was unfolding throughout the course of, of human history. Next week, as I said to you in the beginning, we're probably going to be focused on Daniel's prophetic timeline. I'm not sure at this point. But let's just pause here for a moment and just let's just consider some things here, right? As we move towards closing out this message. I'm not sure how long I've been uh, speaking, but let's, let's move towards closing. Just kind of reiterate just a little bit and make a, make a little sense of this so that we could understand. In the beginning when I started, the, I wanted to make the point of my need to avoid current events today. When we're talking, when we're talking about Bible prophecy, it's just so easy when this particular subject comes up to actually talk about current events, and we can do that, right? I could talk about the European Union, uh, I could talk about the, the 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 nations as they exist in the world geopolitically, etc., and all these things, NAFTA, um, and that new one that Trump established. All these things are pivotal for the introduction of the new world order. But I wanted to go into the book of Genesis so that we can see where all prophecy began because it's important. Because if we don't consider the basis and allow it to serve as foundational to any topic along the lines of eschatology, end times prophecy, right? Then we could easily make the mistake of misunderstanding prophecy. All of prophecy today has to be considered in view of what God established in the nation of Israel. Because that is the pattern that unfolds throughout all of history. Nevertheless, I want to I close with a particular verse here. And I want us to pray together. If this is taken from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 and 2. Some of you are acquainted with, with this particular verse. And the reason why, why, why I want to read it is because as we've talked about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as a type in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I, I want to conclude with a, an amazing passage in my view given by Isaiah so long ago about the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says this, he says, Arise and shine for your light has come. And by the way, he's talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to the Hebrew people, right? He says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Who's it talking about? This is another prophecy, another messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ Himself, and it could it could be divided in a couple of ways: what it, how it was relevant to the Hebrew people, and in that sense, how it's going to be fulfilled in the new future. Although an element of it was fulfilled then, shortly after Isaiah declared it, but ultimately, with regard to the Hebrew people, the Jews today, that's going to be fulfilled much later. But there's a strong element of that particular verse that's being fulfilled in our lifetime. The church, we have the Messiah 
that who has been born, who was born 2,000 plus years ago, he came to die on an old rugged cross. He came to fulfill the ancient redemption narrative as we understand it according to the word of God. Jesus, like Noah, declared a message trying to draw the masses to him in hopes that they would be saved. But in the same way, in fact, Jesus Christ declared this in the New Testament. The, the Jews, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they were looking for a sign. And Jesus Christ said, I'm not giving you a sign. Nevertheless, he, he, he spoke to them about Noah. Yes, he spoke to them about Jonah. But he spoke to them about Noah as well. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be, dot, dot, dot. Referring to the days in which, you know, during that time and this season, as well as the last days before the, the, the rapture, if you will, the rapture of the church before it takes place. These are serious times. Jesus Christ is still on the scene today. He hasn't left us. Maybe his physical self is, is, is not here in our presence, his tangible self is not here physiologically, but Jesus Christ is still with us. He's still in the world today, and he is operating, seeking to draw all of mankind to himself. This is Second Peter chapter three. He, he's he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He has established his church. He has established his family. A nation of believers, if you will. And he's trying to draw you in if you don't know Jesus. I don't know where you are with your faith. But he's trying to draw you in if you don't know him. He wants you to know that salvation is through Him and through Him alone. He took upon Himself your sins and mine, but in order for you to be redeemed, you need to know Him personally. You need to open your heart. You need to recognize the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, you need to open your heart and you need to take the opportunity to invite Him into your soul, into your life, not in some religious way. But in a very intimate, personal way. Because he wants to save your soul. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 His name is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 says there is no forgiveness or remission of sins without the shedding of blood. It was Jesus who hung on the cross. In fact, it was before the cross when he took the opportunity after having been scourged to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And then once hanging on the cross, all of our sins were hurled Unto him on the cross. He died in our place. You would think if you're a believer. That this is a message that's only relevant. To the unbeliever. As I just conveyed it. But it's not. It also relates to you and I as believers as well. Because the Bible talks extensively about how you and I should be living our lives. In fact. I have a verse in mind. That I want to read. Hopefully. I find the correct one. In 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5. It says. Verse 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Beginning with verse 6. It says. So then. Let us not sleep. Talking about. You and I as believers. Let us not sleep. As others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. 
and for a helmet the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. And it was Paul the Apostle, if I'm not mistaken, in Ephesians, where he says, let us redeem the time for the days are evil. Let us be wise, not unwise. He says, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Second Peter chapter 3 says that the Lord is going to return like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to happen. Are you ready? Do you know him personally? Do you know him personally? It is so easy to, to go through the motions. It is so easy to believe we know Jesus because we are a part of a church. And I apologize for belaboring this point. If you need to get to your roast. But just give me a few moments. Because I know somebody needs to hear this. Somebody needs to hear this. This is a declaration according to the word of God. That has been repeating itself through all of history. Since the very beginning. The message of salvation in Christ Jesus. The hope of glory. We need to know him. We need, we need to be convinced that we have truly been converted. That we have truly repented of our sins. You cannot rely on a decision you made when you were a child. You need to know Him. You need to make sure that you know Him. Pray a prayer with me to make sure today. But you got to mean it. Because you got to repent from the heart. Got to know him. We have to know him. We need to be ready. He's coming. He's on his way. Say, dear Jesus, from the heart, dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you love me. And you're asking me to come forward, to accept you into my heart, into my life as Lord and Savior. Lord, I understand that to me, you are asking me to sacrifice my life to you. To give myself over to your care. And that I would be saved. Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. And save my soul. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because I know you are on your way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, thank you so much for our time together here today. I pray for understanding, Lord. I know sometimes, Lord God, I put it out there in a transparent way right here, right now. I'm not ashamed. I know sometimes I may ramble and I know sometimes I may lose my place. But I pray you people understand, Lord God, the importance of biblical prophecy. And how it all started in the beginning. Shortly after the mistake committed by Adam and Eve. You made a powerful declaration then. That one day you would sacrifice your only begotten son. That's extraordinary. It's just so difficult to wrap my mind completely around that concept and then to try to put forth something that makes sense of it all. Yet when I study the scriptures, I, can, I see a pattern, Lord God, repeating itself over and over again in the scriptures. Help us to make sense of this. Because that pattern all along was pointing to the season that we are part of today. In Christendom. Jesus. And the establishment. Of his body. Of his kingdom. Here on earth. As we move forward. With this subject. Help us not to make the mistake. To reach forward. For things that we currently. Already have and enjoy. Help us not to look past. What you came to establish. Which is what we enjoy today in the kingdom of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. 
Help us not to look past this, but to totally and completely appreciate the time in which we live. Give us peace. It's a difficult season with this pandemic. Give us peace. Somebody listening to me has a lot of anxiety, Lord. Give that person peace. Somebody listening to me doesn't have the appropriate biblical perspective that a child of God should have during this season. Father, speak into that person's life today. Settle the storm in that person's life, Lord God, today. In the name of Jesus, make us so that we have a strong sense of the hope that you've, that you've blessed us with in Christ Jesus. Help us to know it, Lord God. And we thank you so much for it. Until we meet again this Wednesday afternoon, should it be your will. May you be with us, Lord God, in a very powerful way. May you help us, Lord God, with this victory. May you help us with this journey that you've placed us on. And may you help us to continue, promote, to preach, to proclaim the message of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. These things we pray, Lord God, giving you glory and honor in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people say, Amen. God bless you, church. I love you much. We love you. Tim sends his shout out. Uh, until next time, God bless.